Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Change can be difficult, but in a world that continues to grow more and more complex, our ability to embrace change and to think more creatively has never been more important. Our guest, Beth Comstock, fully embraces this notion and has led efforts to successfully challenge the status quo at the highest levels of business and media. Beth is the former vice chair of business and innovation at GE. She was the first woman to hold that role in GE's 127-year history. She's also one of the most accomplished women to rise up the ranks in corporate America. Her story provides incredible perspective on women in business. A self-described introvert, Beth talks about how to navigate in a world that can often seem created for extroverts. She challenges us to get comfortable with the uncomfortable, and she tells us how to embrace change. Since leaving GE, Beth has taken her significant knowledge about what she's learned, including the qualities and capabilities that she says we need to face the future. And she's written a terrific book, her first. It's entitled, Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. There has never been a time when change was occurring faster, nor the need for staying ahead of it more important. Beth, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for making the time. Your book is fantastic, and we're going to get into that. But before we do, I want to jump into, you've had this amazing and long career journey, but you ended up in a pretty different place from where you started. So talk to us about where you got your start. Yeah, well, in some ways, it's, I've ended up like where I started, and I'm wandering around trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. Um, so I, it seems familiar because I did that when I first started in my 20s. I, um, I wanted to be a, a television. I was a biology major, College of William Mary. I wanted to be, um, I thought I was going to go to med school, but really what I ended up wanting to do was to be a storyteller about science. And it took me on a path of trying to be an on-air reporter. And pretty quickly, I realized two things. One, I had to be willing to sacrifice and go to very small markets to get started. And I wasn't sure I was uh, I was courageous enough to do that then. And I needed more confidence. I wasn't very confident in front of a camera. So pretty quickly, I got feedback and kind of head behind the scenes um, and got into media and promotion and that, that kind of career path. So you went to work for NBC pretty early on early in your career. Early on, yeah. I had worked, um, I'd worked in Arlington, Virginia for um, what was a version of Wayne's World. You may recall the Wayne's World movie, the sure. Dana Carvey <laughs> movie back in the day about public access television. I worked there <laughs> in Arlington, Virginia, and it was even wackier than Wayne's World. But from there, I kind of got to know some people in uh, in the media world and was able to land a job as publicity coordinator at NBC. 
Yeah. You talk in the book about that first job really helped you build some resilience very early on. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think it helped me resilience because I just had to define what I was doing, who I was. Um, I mean, I showed up at NBC um, as a publicity coordinator. I was sitting in the newsroom, uh, in the literally in the filing cabinet, but I was in heaven. I've made it. I'm in media. I'm finally here. And um, pretty quickly, GE had bought NBC about the time I started. And pretty quickly, the department I joined was six people. And within a year, it was me and an intern. And so I had a lot of learning to do on the job training and to figure out how to be really scrappy. Luckily, I didn't have any expectations, so that kind of worked out for, for me and them. Yeah. So you went from NBC to CNN, largely because you felt like you weren't being sort of seen, right. being acknowledged. Well, NBC moved me from Washington, D.C. to New York City. That was me, like small town girl. That was my, oh, I'm finally in New York, media capital. And I ended up going to work. I was in corporate communications, and I had a boss who was just, he was a jerk. Um, I call him a gatekeeper, and I think um, it really helped me to appreciate there are always going to be people in your life and your career who tell you no, and he was classic. He didn't want the team to give him feedback, and he kind of told us what to do, and I didn't feel I had a path there, so I promptly left and went to CNN. But I got as soon as I got there, I realized there are gatekeepers everywhere. And had to learn to develop some tactics. And what's a gatekeeper? It's someone who tells you, no, you can't go through this gate. And um, it was a formative learning experience, but I also learned they're everywhere. Yeah. So in recognizing and dealing with gatekeepers, especially when you're just launching your career, what's some advice that you have for dealing with people like that? Well, uh, in the book I call my boss then J.R., and... I took it very personally. So I think that's the first thing is sometimes it's not about you. And it took me a while to appreciate that. The second thing is, as I said, I left and realized there are people who protect the new ideas from getting through no matter where they are. Sometimes they're even in your own head. So recognize there are gatekeepers everywhere. And then you have to learn how to deal with it. You know, it's not fair. I can't believe I work for this guy and he won't let anyone. And so I think one just trying multiple ways to get around. I, I tried a little bit of that, but I took it very personally. I mean, I, I even saved a habit today. It was helpful in putting the book together. A memo I did to him, I think it was like five pages on how we could change things. And I poured my whole soul into it. And he said, no, I don't like any of it. But it meant something that I've kept it to this day. But I do think feedback's important. I think what might have been better is more regular feedback, more small touch, not kind of a Mueller report of what I thought the what I was indicting him or not indicting him for, um, and so I think there are ways to try to give that feedback loop on a more regular basis. Work more with the team. Are there things we can just do that actually the boss doesn't need to give us approval on? Do we really need his approval, or we're just afraid to do it? And I think that's part of what I try to chronicle are some of the the agency grabbing mechanisms that I had to get comfortable with. Yeah, it can be hard to know whether you should leave a job once yeah. you've outlined your you know provided them with your detailed plan and these are all the all the changes that I think should be made and they're promptly ignored right. or worse um, how long do you stay? How, how do you know when it's time to leave a job like oh, that? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm not sure I can give you a good answer because I look at myself and my career I probably stayed longer for many things because I just I just wanted it to work. But in that case, or in many cases, just you realize this isn't going to change. Uh, and I 
have to leave. And I hate in a company when you people get to that point, but sometimes that's the answer. It could be a relationship. It could be a friendship. Sometimes you just realize this isn't working out. And there's this magical thinking that often takes over. If I just try harder, if I just, if I just work, it's just, if I could just do more, it's going to work out. And you just have to realize if, am I expending too much energy? Do I have any feedback or positive signs of change? No, it's probably time to leave. Do you think that that tendency to stick it out is more of a inherent female tendency than a male tendency? Perhaps. I mean, certainly that's been my experience. Um, and I think for me in my career, I mean, I've been working for almost 30 years, so I, I think things have changed a little bit. In the early days, there were fewer jobs open for women, so there was much more like I've got this this in. I got it. I can't let it go. So I think there was a bit more panic about that. And you saw some bad behavior, women behaving not well to others. I hope some of that's changed. I'm not sure it's perfect. I, I know it's not perfect. But I do think there is just, I think I have experienced as women, we're collaborators. We want to work together and we just can't believe we can't. And so there's this kind of like, if I can just try another way in, maybe we'll get together and make it work this time. So I think that is well-meaning, but sometimes it just is we're, we're kind of setting ourselves up to fail. Yeah. You went from NBC to CNN. You worked directly for Ted Turner. Um, you left CNN ultimately to go back to NBC, and you did that at a time when NBC's brand was really in crisis, yeah. if you will. Talk about why you made that shift. I mean, why leave CNN to go back to NBC? Well, I went to CBS because it was a new opportunity, and then it was in entertainment, and I was really missing news. And so I had the opportunity to come back to NBC at, a, as you said, a, a time of crisis. Um, you have to go in the Wayback Machine to, to know this, but at the time, uh, NBC had indulged in an early version of fake news where they faked a story uh, about a General Motors truck and basically almost brought the whole news division down. Uh, they almost closed the division, but every, needless to say, many people got fired. And so they brought a new news division president, Andy Lack, kind of flashback. But um, for me, it was this opportunity. I, to, they, they reached out to me and said, would you think of coming back? And, and at the time, colleagues, when I announced that I was going to do it, they're like, this is career suicide. No one would take that job. Do you realize, like you said yes to something that everyone else said no to? But I can't describe it. Even today, I look back. One, it was one of the, most, the best, most formative jobs I've ever had. There was just a gut feeling that this job is right for you. I couldn't tell you. And truth be told, I got a better title and I got... I don't know. I might have gotten a few thousand dollars more, but it wasn't a raise. Mm. So if I'm really honest, I was I did it on a lot of faith. But I'm so glad I did because it unleashed an entrepreneurial spirit I didn't know I had and I didn't expect to find in a big company where basically we had nothing to lose because we were everybody thought we were already like just done. So you had nothing to lose by just going for it. And Andy and the team helped create a team, and I was given a lot of freedom. And so it was. that's why it was formative to me. But my lesson there was just always gut, that gut. And everybody telling you, like, oh, that's so stupid. You, you, you know, that's like the dumbest thing. And you're like, I know, but I got I to gotta do it. Yeah. It's so hard to learn to listen to your instincts. Yeah. And, and if you do just the rational reason, you'll probably talk yourself out of it. Because yeah. um, there's always a rational reason not to do something or to do it, whatever your tough decision is. But to be able to give that space where you go, okay, how do I feel about it? 
And then your decision's made. Then, you know, I had bad days there. I couldn't go, yeah, you know, they were right. This job stinks. On those moments, I made this decision. I have to make it work. Yeah. Did you know going into it that you would have that level of autonomy that you were seeking? No. And partly, maybe I intuited it a bit. Maybe I smelt something. Um, also, I think you make it. It's it's also one of those moments I talk in the book about job crafting, this idea of kind of crafting things around where you are, where you want to do more. And so why can't you add certain things to your job responsibility if they bring you some development opportunity? I think I was able to do some of that. I. There wasn't a job spec, really. I got to hire the team I wanted. We got to do work that people didn't have. They didn't know what to expect of us. And so I often, for me, sort of recommend what I I found for myself, and I think it's a good recommendation, is sometimes take take the job that no one else wants because the expectations are so low. And it's kind of like a playground or a sandbox or whatever analogy you want to use. And did I intuit that a bit? I mean, maybe there was in some way a weird lack of confidence about it <laughs> um, that ended up giving me confidence. And I hadn't really thought about it until just you asked that question. Yeah. You are a self-described introvert. I'm curious about your thoughts related to you identify as an extra, as an introvert. What's the parallel with confidence? as it relates to being an introvert? Because I know you spend a lot of time thinking about it because you talk about it very eloquently in the book. Yeah. Well, I am introverted. It's something I've been my whole life. And for me, it has impacted my confidence. But I think they're separate in the sense that as an introvert, I'm also shy. And they're, in a sense, you could ask someone who's an introvert expert. They're different. To me, what I've experienced with introversion is it holds me back. I'm, I'm reserved. You're never going to call me the life of the party. Trust me, no one's ever called me that, and I doubt they ever will. Um, unless it's my own party. Um, <laughs> but it, you hold yourself back. I hold myself back. I'm shy. I'm reserved. I don't. I don't put myself out there first. I want to take in the situation. I maybe come to a meeting and I don't ask a question. I don't talk during the whole meeting if, if it's not my meeting. And um, after a while, you, I just that wasn't working for me because I realized I was holding myself back, and you start to lose some confidence. And I'd already say I probably didn't have as much confidence as I could have as I was building up work. You question, I question myself. I overthink everything. So those two things, um, I, I realized I held myself back in a, in a lot of ways that uh, I had to get over. It's funny though because it sounds like you're describing it as a weakness. But in reality, it may have given you that space to have the perspective to see things that other people didn't see or didn't sort of didn't put the pieces together in the same way that you did. I do think there's an advantage to being an introvert, and I, I try to highlight that. I think there is exactly what you said, Laura. It's about observation. Uh, it's about the ability to listen and really hear what people are saying. Um, as somebody who's worked as an introvert and managed teams of people who include introverts, I think it's our job if we if we have in that position to try to give people space that works with their style. Maybe you have an introvert on your team and don't expect them to ask the first question. Maybe you need to say, Laura, what do you think? For some people, that may, that wigs them out, so you need to know them well. But, Laura, what do you think? Laura, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Or, Laura, can you synthesize this meeting? You know, I and count on you to have been the one that took it all in and can pull it all together. So I, I also think there are different roles in different ways. And again, it takes confidence as an introvert to go, no, I can contribute stuff. I'm just not going to do it that way. I'm not going to suck the oxygen out of the room to do it. What are your 
tips or what have been your best tips for building that confidence? This is something we talk an awful lot about on the podcast is how do you build your confidence, especially after you've had some kind of setback? Yeah, and I think about this a lot as a mother of daughters. Uh, I mean, I was raised in a small town um, with very loving parents, a very nurturing environment. By all accounts, I was raised in an environment that, sh- that, that set me off in the world with a lot of confidence. I, could, I left Winchester, Virginia, thinking I could probably do anything I wanted. What happened? You know, the system kind of takes over. You question yourself a little bit. So I think part of that was just the discovery of learning about yourself and being inexperienced. What I'd recommend is just try things. Just start. I mean, set yourself up to try things in a small scale. Um, You know, I mean, I I talked about uh, earlier about wanting to be a reporter. I mean, I... To go back in time, I would have had to have gone to taken a job at Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa is even a big market now, and even then, I, you know, I pick a really small market. I worked at my college television station to make really bad videotapes that made my, you know, just do those things that give you the experience in a way that is building your craft, giving you a small feedback loop, and lets you fail small. And then build on that. I mean, and it takes time. And I think people hear that and they get frustrated. It's like you want to take a pill that gives me confidence. In fact, I took those for a while when I used to give speeches. There's certain <laughs> pills you can take to get over your anxiety and giving speeches. Did it work? A little bit. But then you're like, well, what if the pill? Anyway, right. so it starts to create another whole thing. But um, but the way do you, how do you get confident in giving a speech? You just give one in a small way. Give it to your family. Give it to your team over lunch before you go give it to the board. So um, that's what you have to do. You just have to do it. You just have to start and go, okay, I'm going to do this in a small way so I can build up the capability to do it in a big way. That's what it worked for me. And and the other thing is permission granting. And I I, uh, am just passionate about this mindset shift that I had to go through, and I see it with teams. You have to give yourself permission to try these things. Who are you waiting for? Yeah. If if who's going to tell you to do this if not you? And so there's also that kind of getting your mind set ready to say I'm going to try and it's okay if I don't do as well as I think I'm going to. Yeah. Back to the um discussion we were having a second ago about being an introvert. I'm curious about your thoughts as it relates to women who are introverts and whether you feel like they are at more at more of a disadvantage potentially than their male counterparts. Probably societally. I mean, you know, I I think, um, unfortunately, I had experienced, I think people didn't expect me to say anything in meetings, and they were okay with it. And that wasn't good. I mean, I think men introverts probably have been more pressured and maybe even conditioned to, you know, that'll just say something. It doesn't matter how smart you are, just say it. Right. And I, I, I think more women are not going to say something unless they have something good to say. And then that's where the whole confidence comes in. But I don't have anything good. And yet the guy asks it and you're like, but that, that was my question. So I do think that some of the, some of the dynamic that, that kicks in there a bit, it, you overthink these things a little bit. But yeah, I, I, my experience or it's, I had this recently, even today I get this. Uh, I mean, I've been around a while, but I was in uh, doing something with a group and some guy said, smile. Like, I don't want to smile. This isn't a happy session discussion we're having. So you get that kind of feedback, which isn't helpful, right? You're, you're watching me. You're looking at how many times I smile in the course of this discussion. Oh, now I got to worry, am I smiling enough? So, so that socialization starts to kick in. 
And rather than worrying about what question I'm going to ask next, I'm worrying about am I smiling enough for you? Right. It's that whole notion of nice. <clears throat> yeah. Right. That that sort of double-edged sword exactly. as it relates to women. And and that we all. I mean, oh, I I'm so guilty of those. Like, excuse me, but or sorry to interrupt, but the sorry, sorry, <laughs> but um, or. Sometimes I like this, so I, this is a double-edged sword, but often that I don't know if this is a good idea. Sometimes I'm like, what I, What I've learned to say instead is this is a hypo- early hypothesis, but here's what if. So, you know, we, we kind of apologize before we speak up. As women, I've seen that ha- that a lot. Yeah, that whole self-deprecation thing. But, you know, you, you grew up in the South or sort of the quasi-South. Yeah. So did I. And that notion of apologizing or, you know, I hate to bother you, but kind of kind of thing is part of that's cultural, too. But it, I think, can really have a negative impact. Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up in a community where you're like, bless her heart. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was like, I'm going to say something nasty about her, but I'm going to say something nice. You know, it's sort of this whole. And so you do. I mean, I had to say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am to people. And I think maybe in my early days of work, I thought that was the polite way you conduct yourself. And you start to realize work is not polite in that way. You talk over one another. In the cultures I grew up in media and in industry, people talked over one another. I I think I developed a really bad habit where I still catch myself talking over people because I'm. it's like like getting food at you're in a big family for dinner, right? If I don't grab it, it's not going to be there. And so I got to talk over you. That's a really bad habit. Yeah. And there's an urgency, too. Yeah. Right? It's sort of the immediacy. Right. Okay, let's get to the point. Right. right. And so you're not even thinking about what am I going to ask. It's just like, I got to go. Yeah. Let's pivot a bit and talk about the book. What inspired you to write this particular book? You've had an amazing career. You've covered a lot of ground. You have been on the forefront of a lot of innovation and change. But what inspired you to write this particular book? Because it's part it's part how-to. It's part memoir. There's a lot of pieces here. Why this book? Well, I was coming, I knew I was coming to the end of my time at GE, although I didn't know it exactly in the way it did. But, um, and I specifically did a great um education session every month at our training center where I got to spend time with early to mid-career people. And I talked about innovation and risk-taking and the things that I was trying to lead with the teams I worked with. And I'd always hear people, yeah, that works for you, but I could never do that. You, You don't know. You don't know my boss. You don't know my budget. We could never do that. Uh, the FDA's ruling in the healthcare, whatever. There was always some excuse. It became an excuse factory. And they'd like my stories, but they'd feel like it didn't, they didn't know how to make it happen. And so I just started to realize, like, I was that person and that self-permission granting. So I almost called the book Permission Granted because it was this moment of you have to give yourself permission to push for some of these things in an organization. In fact, the organization demands it. So what I started doing at this class is I would come up with permission slips and I'd hear people, yeah, but you don't know my boss. I'm like, yeah, actually, I do know your boss. Did you ask them? No. Well, then how do you know they're going to say no? So I'd, I'd hand them a permission slip and I'd say, okay, I want you to challenge yourself to take a risk, pitch an idea, try something creative that you don't think you're going to be able to do, and let me know how it goes. And it just sort of built from there. And so I felt I wanted to capture that. Um, I also just wanted to chronicle the messiness of change as somebody who built my career in a time of great change, digital change in media, digital change in industry, as somebody who sort of fought for what's next and new. 
we think change management is really easy. It's step one, two, three, I'm done. That's what they taught me in you know business school. It's not right. And so I wanted to combine those two things and try to give people early to mid-career the, the, the encouragement, maybe a bit of inspiration, and the practical tools to help drive the change they know has to happen. Yeah. Talk about what I think can often feel like an inherent conflict between short-term investor goals and longer-term innovation goals. It's a huge conflict, and it worries me today profoundly. Um, I happen to work as part of an administration at GE. Jeff Immelt was great in helping seed the future and putting people like me in giving us resources and kind of another lane in the company. And I think we did well by that. We could have done a lot more. But the inherent tension, I mean, you know, the, the, the short-term metrics, the ability to go quarter to quarter, there's a reason you need that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, I'm not so naive to think you don't need that, but it starts to create some unintended consequences. People don't think ahead. I think we're seeing that today in technology where a lot of organizations haven't thought ahead to some of the unintended consequences. And so I'm a big believer in at least two speeds of running a company, your now and your next. And your next is different metrics, different funding, different people. And I wish more investors would ask for that. And I think the time to ask it, if you're an investor in Amazon right now or Apple or whatever company's flying high, the time to ask is Netflix. Right now, what are you doing for tomorrow? Why should I feel good about it? Don't wait till the company's in crisis. I mean, we we seeded clean tech that way. Can I tell you in 15 years, I could never get an investor to take that seriously. They thought it was too small, dabbling. Oh, that's just marketing. And then suddenly they realize, hey, solar is bigger than we thought. Why aren't we bigger in that space? So I guarantee you those questions need to be asked and you need a lane. So I, I think our system is far from perfect in that right now. And I wish we had more activists for the future. I wish we had more second lane development in more public companies. And hopefully you're seeing some of that. You've got long-term stock exchange, mm -hmm. some other things, but it's very slow. Yeah. there. I mean, there have from time to time been discussions about having longer reporting, you know, rather than having a quarter-to-quarter -quarter reporting cycle, having much longer cycles. But I don't know if that's... And, and I, I've actually done a little bit of research. You know, some of this has changed in Europe. In some respects, they found it inconclusive because it brings back to something you know well. It's about leadership. Right. At the end of the day, even if you have to report your earnings quarterly, a good leader can say, but I'm running the company, and I'm going to create a what's next lane. I'm going to divert some of our profit to make sure we're invested in digital, clean tech, whatever, because that's my role is the sustainability and future of the company. So a good leader has to prioritize that. And you get back to where we started. It's a bit of the victims. I can't do that. My investors won't let me. Well, who's running the company? Yeah. It's, not, it's easy. And yeah. I think that's what people, <laughs> right? It's not easy. You're also balancing things like risk management. How do you keep risk management from becoming a gatekeeper versus just, I guess, guardrails? Right. I'm not even sure if that's the no, right No, I love the way you said that. But how, how, how would you advise individuals and organizations to think about getting that balance right? Yeah, well, I love the way you said it, Laura. I mean, I think there is no risk-free promise. And I think in part of what I'm trying to rally a little, uh, maybe from the middle of the organization out, is it kind of rage a little bit against the machine. We're, we're convinced that there's a checklist for everything, that there's 
efficiency and optimization and that we can checklist our way out of risk and no crisis ever happen. We're ready for every potential. We're, 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 we have a checklist to follow. And, and increasingly, risk is trying things. It's getting to see where change is happening early. Um, I saw something recently, some uh, investment house analysts came out, and they, I think it was about Tesla, and they did a couple of scenarios, best case, average case, worst case. Of course, the media just went like, here's the worst case possible, like Tesla stock's going to tank and this. But I wish more people would do more of that. And that kind of scenario planning um, to just start to say, what does this mean if this happens? How do we think about that? So I don't see enough of that baked into organizations. Yeah. You had a great reputation as a leader building great teams and really getting great work from them. Let's talk a bit about what were some of your biggest challenges as a manager and as a leader? You talked about the permission slips, which I think is an amazing idea, but what were some of the biggest challenges that you encountered? Well, the first is to get out of my own way as somebody. I mean, I remember thinking, like, I can't wait to lead people. And then you realize, like, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. And really, this kind of thing is carried with me today, this idea you don't really manage people. I mean, anyone who's got a partner or a spouse, <laughs> I certainly don't manage my husband, nor does he manage me. By that, I mean we don't control them. And there's some sense as a manager, we tell you what to do. Um, and we don't. We inspire. We coach. We give feedback. We fight for resources. We fight for the best people. We define a problem set and a vision. And then we encourage people to work towards solving it. And I think that just never, I, I, and so I, I have to learn a lot of that along your way. So that would be my basic premise is just a lot of work in yourself mm -hmm. to realize what is your job. It's coach, inspire, fight for. It's not to tell people what to do. When did you learn that? Late. Because <laughs> if there's anyone who's hearing this that I worked with early on, they're going to be like, she's so full of ass. She is just so, that is, she was such a micromanager. She was on my case about, so yes, I was that. And uh, I know that person. And I'm not happy to tell you that she was me. Um, because we think that's what we're supposed to do. So I think it was late in my career that I realized your job is to have a vision inspire and as I said fight for resources yeah you got to give people feedback it's you're not what you're doing is not working how can I help you get to what works so it's more team collaboration I think for me it was just getting my own feedback I remember once um I got one of these big 360s and I got feedback that my colleagues were saying you are a perfectionist and you expect everything to be done perfectly so you come to us with a perfectly baked idea you don't ask for help, and frankly, we don't like working with you. And I heard that kind of universally. And I remember the moment I got the feedback, the HR person's like, you know, gave me some good advice, and he said, you need to go in there and say, I've heard you, I accept you, and I need your help. And today, it just even gives me kind of like, oh, it gives me like a stomach ache thinking about that, that feeling, but I did it, and I had to do it, and I had to mean it. And it opened leadership up to me in a whole new way. Because I was asking for help. Yeah, and people responded. Yeah, exactly. They were waiting for that opportunity, and I hadn't heard them. And had that not happened, it was an intervention, really. I can cite now the projects I was got to be part of, the collaboration that happened, the joy. I mean, if there's anything I'm proud of of the teams I work with, we did great work together. Like, I would, I would never trade that in for anything. And so... It wasn't they did what I told them. I hope they didn't sometimes because I would have told them bad stuff. 
The feedback was really a gift. Yeah. And I had to learn that painfully. Yeah. Yeah. As, as is oftentimes the case. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, learned valuable lessons, I'm sure, from amazing CEOs and, and, and individuals that I would say were probably pretty tough bosses. Um, Ted Turner, Jack Welch, Jeff Emelt, among others. What were some of the most significant um, lessons that you learned from any of those individuals? Well, I think what they all uh, bring to bear is that they were all very high-profile individuals um, who, you know, expected you to be on your game. So they were constantly challenging. So are you putting yourself in a position where you're allowing yourself to be challenged? Um, I love the story when I worked with Jack Welch and, you know, he took the time to give me feedback that I was being very abrupt. I'd come out of NBC into GE and he said, you're, you know, he said, you have to wallow in it. And I was like, you know, you're, you're Mr. Edge. You're like Mr. Like getting it done fast. What are you talking about? I should be like your prize pupil. And he's like, no, you, you, you get stuff done and you leave a meeting. You don't stop and get to know people. So I want you to work on that. And he, he, you tell a great story about this particular epiphany yeah. in the book. Will you share that? Yeah. So he's, he says, wallow in it. So I go, and then a couple months later, I pick up the phone. And his assistant said, you know, Jack's on the phone for you. I, Jack wasn't there. He, 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 I lost him. I called Roseanne back. I said, uh, I lost Jack. She said, oh, no, he hung up on you. Because he wanted you to know that's what, you're, that's what it's like dealing with you. So he used humor. He used a very point. I hadn't taken his advice, and I never forgot it. Not to say I always changed it, but um, I love that. And so I love bosses, and, you know, I share a story of Jeff Immelt calling me in and saying I wasn't confident enough. I love people who give me tough realities and let me rise to the occasion. Yeah. This notion of perfection that we touched on a second ago um, I think can be particularly challenging for women, especially young women, as we're launching our careers. There's a lot of pressure to get things right, or at least we feel a lot of pressure in that regard. Um, what what specific advice would you give young women who are just launching their career as it relates to this notion of perfection and feedback in particular? Well, you're not perfect, um, and you're not going to attain it. Um, and I, I think I, I'm a recovering perfectionist. If I'm really honest, I don't believe that still, <laughs> um, but I try to practice it. You, you, you don't believe the recovering part, or you don't believe the perfection part? I don't part? believe that perfection is not possible. <laughs> yeah. And so you, but it's not. It's an illusion. And mm -hmm. so you just, it's just, it's good enough. Did yeah. I, did I do ever? Did I work hard? And is it good enough? I mean, if you fail, you fail. You have to call that. But good enough. Um, and we bring everybody off for myself. I know I brought everybody's expectations and made them mine. And so, again, I think that feedback loop is, is that I got feedback, but is that relevant to what I want to do, where I'm going, the story I have for myself? If not, I'm not going to accept that. So I think there's a strength that comes in knowing what you are, what your story is. So that would be the other thing. I think spend a lot of time, what's your story? And it changes over time. But you're the author of your story, not my mom, not my fifth grade teacher, you know, not the manager. Yeah. And so I think we often lose sight of that. We're waiting for someone else to tell us what our story is. Yeah. This notion of story comes up time and time again. It's a big theme in the book. When did you realize the value of storytelling for your own career? Well, I, I actually start off the book with a story that was very personal that impacted my career. I mean, I talk about um, being, you know, mid-20s, a new mother and getting a, and 
saying I needed to get a divorce and deciding to move forward in life as a single mother because I realized the story I had signed up for was not my story. I um, I was married to a, you know, a really nice guy, and but I didn't want that path. But I didn't really... I let everybody else's story shape what I was supposed to be. Small town, good girl, this is what you're supposed to do. That wasn't my story. So I had to take a very painful act and get a divorce and move forward in a different way. It's to this day probably, it still is the most painful thing I've ever done. But it helped me in my career because it helped me realize whenever I have to encounter a change situation, to say you've been here before. Remember, you were there before, you made it work. You had to make it work. Really, that's the answer. Um, but it's knowing what your story is, and it's very painful. And so in my career, I'd be like, well, I have to change this, but I've been here before, and I know I can do it. So there's a bit of confidence. Believe in yourself a bit there, too. It's kind of like your mother always told you. Let's talk about how storytelling relates to purpose and mission in an organization. I know, again, this is a big theme that you talk about in the book. Play that out for us. Why does that? Why is storytelling an important component of that notion of purpose and mission? Well, I'm. I think one of the things I realized just in putting the book together and looking at the arc of my career is that I am a storyteller. I like telling stories. I'm also a strategist, and I think it was only later that I realized those two are intimately linked. I mean, if you're building a business or you're leading a team, it starts with a story, which is also your strategy. Where are we going? Why us? What's going to happen when we get there as a customer, as an employee, as an investor? And so for me, one of the mantras became, you know, strategy is a story well told. If you can't tell your strategy as a story, maybe you don't have one. Why should I come and work for you, Laura? Can you build me a story of what you're trying to do with she said, she said? Can I believe it? Do I want that to become now part of my story? Can I? Is that story good enough, open enough that I can make it my, I can contribute to it? So to me, stories are aspirations. Where are you going in the world? Where have you come from? An explanation of what you're trying to accomplish. And too often in business, we think it's about numbers. You know, it's and so that was, I, I think, me for me in my career, recognizing the importance of those two things being linked and realizing there's emotion in business. And um, I can't tell you how many people are like, yeah, but we're business to business company or all people care about is the, the outcome, the economic, the logical. Yeah, they care about that, but they care more about emotion and they can't tell you that. And it's a bit of faith and you work your way through a lot of those discussions. But I didn't need the evidence more than experience to say that. You do enough of that and you see people respond and it back to where we started, it builds confidence. You're like, okay, I can give you a number or I can tell you a story to see which works. How, what's your advice for learning to tell the best story, whether it's telling the story of you as an individual or telling the story of your company or organization? Well, simple thing is just get you. So if I, if I meet you, let's say you and I meet tomorrow on the street and I go, what's your story? How are you going to answer me? Oh, I run away like she's a weirdo. Um, what's your story? Like it means what are you trying to accomplish in the world? Not just what's your job title. Where'd you come from? What do you aspire for? It doesn't have to be fully baked yet. That makes me want to help you. So I think some of those kind of, can you answer some of those kind of questions? Um, it works in as a sales and marketing person. I mean, I, I tell a story in the book. This is a true story. I went and bought like strawberries at the local market and the proprietor was like, well, these strawberries were like $3 more or whatever. And he's like, there was this 
lovely little woman in Pennsylvania Dutch country who like picked these just this morning and so in my mind he told this whole story about this woman I imagine her like kissing every strawberry laying it gingerly in the basket I was sold and I'm a sucker and I paid three dollars more for that basket because there was a story behind it right. and that's what people want to relate to it GE for us it was unearthing Thomas Edison we were saying we were about an innovative spirit why should I believe you? Oh, we were born of this guy called Thomas Edison. Remember you learned about him in grade school, this original inventor? That's us. There's a story there. Here's our modern day version of that. And for the employees, it was a way to say, oh, yeah, I'm of I'm a that progeny. I have that in me. So um, it just, we're emotional beings. And we, we need story. It builds cultures. It builds businesses. And I wish we accepted that more as opposed to thinking it's, oh, you'd get, it, here's my product. Just get me a story. Well, isn't there a story behind why you started the product? Yeah. So you have transitioned from your role at GE. You're now doing something that's much more entrepreneurial. Talk about that. What, talk about what you're working on today. Well, I'm mostly wandering around, so I'm um, sort of where, where I started in my career, kind of wondering what's next. I left GE at the end of 2017, somewhat abruptly. There was a leadership change. I knew I'd be leaving at some point, but it happened much more abruptly. And here's, I, you know, I write a book about change. I call myself a change maker. But truth is, I don't really like change that I don't control, which is mo how most of us feel. And Human nature. Most change we don't control. <laughs> so that was a reminder as I was putting this book out, see... Um, so I had to get my head around that, not working with a team I loved and some of that. And um, and I had to put a book out. The book required me to be very entrepreneurial. You're, you're, I had to find a hustle in me I forgot I had, but I still have it. Um, and now I'm allowing the space to just wander and discover. I, I'm a big believer in what I call make room for discovery. Figure out, give yourself time to think about what's next. A business, a team, yourself. So I'm doing that now. I've been dabbling with some things in a university. I've been looking at um, doing a lot of reading and writing. And so um, experimenting, advising some startups, just sort of giving, creating my own laboratory for what's next and giving myself room. And it's really hard because I, people are like, well, what are you doing? Well, I don't know yet. And I've had people go, oh, you just don't want to tell me. I'm really offended. Like, no, I don't. I don't know yet. Well, when are you going to know? I don't know. Um, so it's very fraught with ambiguity, and some days I feel horrible, some days I feel great, but it's part of the process, and I'm committed to make myself do this process again. And now a little bird told me that you um, have done some interesting and maybe slightly unorthodox things to push yourself out of your comfort zone, including an improv class. Yes, I did an improv class. I've taken art classes. I. Uh, my husband and I have been renovating a small little rundown farm. So I'm a part-time farmer. These are things I'm not good at. And I've intentionally put myself in those situations. Um, in academia, do I come up, should I come up with a class? Like you and I were talking, how do yeah. you build a curriculum? I don't know. But there's a beginner's mind part of me that I actually like. And I'm trying to, after all that experience and titles and all that, to suddenly say I have none of that. I have wisdom. I have experience. So that I have more than when I was 25. But in some ways, I'm like that 25-year-old, and I don't know what's next, and I'm trying to force myself into those places that I don't know. In writing the book, was there anything that surprised you about your story? Well, it w I had a co-writer. That was surprising. To I, I had to get what was in my head out. 
so, you know, that just realizing how I, I think how embedded things were, how cl- I was too close to certain things that I thought were interesting that he was like, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I think, you know, if I were to write it today, because I've had I turned it in uh, probably the beginning of 2017, I would have been more reflective on my leadership style. I talked a lot of first person, here's how I saw things, here were the interpersonal relationships, here's what I did with the teams I worked with. But, you know, I was abrupt with people. I was a micromanager. And I thought, you know, those things make me cringe even more. And I probably could have written, you know, I wish I had, we don't, there's only so many pages, but I've thought more about that kind of um, self-reflection of the, I, a little of that, but I, I feel like even in the time I've had more of that. Yeah, maybe that's book number two. Yeah, I think people are done with my career stuff. I need something else. There may be book two, but it'll be something (laughs) very different. But um, I do think that everyone should make sure they have time to reflect whether something was successful or not. And look, a lot of the G stuff's been called into question. I had to go through a journey of what was success? What was it at a team level? What was it as a company level? What was it at a personal level? In the end of the day, I had to come up with my story of what it is, and maybe it doesn't jive with anyone else, but I needed that space for myself. And so those are things I feel much differently about now than I did two years ago. Yeah. We ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. You have tremendous advice and perspective in this book, but if you had to boil it down to one thing, maybe it's what you tell your kids. What would yours be? Well, I think it would be, well, I want to tell you two, but I will just tell you one. But I think it is what we talked about earlier. What's your story? Know your story. Um, My youngest daughter's an actor, and, you know, you you show up as a character every different way. But what I've seen in that, that skill that she has is at the core, you still know who you are. And it's been fun to see both of my daughters kind of come into their own and their own their own story. I mean... I can tell them what to do, but they're not going to listen to me anyway. And what's their story? And I, if I could go back in time and, you know, I, I did strike out to figure it out in a very painful way, but I think I would have had much more confidence that I'm building my story and it's okay to not always know. So that would be the best some time. What's your story? Really, what is it? What do you want it to be? How do you want to show up in the world? And and it can be ugly and Parts of it are a mystery, and parts of it are fraught with failure and conflict. It's not a perfect Instagram story. Don't think that's it. In fact, the best parts are the ones that have the rough spots, the crooked nose, or whatever is your story. Yeah. Beth, amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really great questions. Thank you. Well, I loved the conversation. Really appreciate you doing this. To learn more about Beth, visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. We'll include links to Beth's terrific book, Imagine It Forward, as well as some photos from today's visit. You'll also find our entire lineup of incredible women who, like Beth, are sharing what they've learned to help each of us live our best lives and have a positive, inspiring impact on the world. As always, thanks so much for listening.